Welcome to Hunting Influence, a podcast by Influence Hunter. We share stories from those that have it and those that leverage it to help you develop what we believe could be the most important skill in business right now, influence. I'm your host, Aaron Kostinets. All right. I'm here today with Austin Maxwell. Austin is the co-founder of Kanga Coolers, manufacturers of the Kanga Casemate, which is the world's first and only iceless cooler for an entire case of beer or soda. Kanga Coolers was featured in Shark Tank Season 10, uh, and they landed a deal with none other than Mark Cuban. They sell directly to their website and retailers across the country. Thanks for coming on today, Austin. Aaron, thanks for having me, brother. Looking forward to uh, an, an awesome chat with you today. Me too. I want to start this out uh, with going back to you and maybe you growing up. I want to hear, how did you get started on the entre- your entrepreneurial journey? Uh, was there anything you did, kind of lemonade stand like growing up that uh, gave you your first taste of being an entrepreneur? Yeah, absolutely. It, it I think everything that's happened over the last 20, I guess I'm 26 now, 26 years of my life has kind of brought us to where we are today. There's different pieces uh, of long journey that have led to certain moments. And I think it's all uh, a collective effort. And I think the the early stages would bring me back to my young teenager days, maybe 12, 13 years old. And uh, we lived on the Magdi River in Annapolis, Maryland. And my dad bought for a birthday gift, a hand-me-down little John boat with like a 10... Uh, a, a, a very, very basic motor. I don't want to get into the details of, of what it was because it wasn't anything special. But the, uh, the, the boat we had purchased so that we would be able to start a crabbing business. If anyone's familiar with the East Coast, they'll know that like Maryland blue crabs are, are very popular. And uh, so what we did was we would get up at 4 or 5 a.m. in the morning and take a trot line which is a thousand yards uh, of string with chicken necks wrapped every three feet. And you would lay it in the water, let it rest, let crabs come up on it. You take the John boat and you just go straight very slowly while the line would pull up on this like hook looking PVC pipe that was hanging on the outside of the boat. And you would scoop a crab, put it in the bucket, move on to the next one. Well, over the course of two, three hours out there, you could get five, six bushels of crabs and five, six, you know, a bushel is about seven dozen crabs, right? So I'm 13 years old and we get back to the house and it's like, we can't eat all these crabs, right? It's a family of four. That's, there's no chance, right? So what are we going to do with them? Well, we're going to go door to door and, uh, and start to try to sell some of these things. Well, the going rate for a bushel of crabs in our neighborhood and, and neighboring neighborhoods was like $400 live raw crabs. So I would go to this little 13 year old and just show up to someone's front doorstep with these live crabs and, uh, and, and see if they would uh, be willing to purchase them and have like a nice afternoon cookout with their family and, and steam some crabs. So my dad kept all the money, of course, like I'm 13 years old. Like, you know, it, it, he was really just trying to get me to hustle and, and learn about the, the early stages of what it meant to generate revenue from maybe a non-traditional source, right? So that kind of started things off and it got me interested in uh, a business in general. And so that led me to, you know, maybe 16, 17 years old, junior year of, uh, of high school, uh, 
got involved in the car wash. So this isn't like a traditional car wash. Like it was a pretty high end car wash. Like your, your average car is like a Mercedes Audi. You know, I'm over here with my 2001 Toyota Camry. And, uh, and, and so I was just thrown to kind of the fire and I was the tire shine guy. So as cars come out of the tunnel, I take some tire shine and I put them on every single wheel. So four, four tires times 200 cars a day, you know, we're almost approaching a thousand wheels in a day that I'd be just down on my hands and knees, throwing tire shine on built a lot of discipline, but it definitely wasn't my style. Like it was, it was very an independent position, not a lot of dealing with customers, not a lot of opportunity to talk to people. And that's kind of what, what my passion was. So at the front of the car wash, the other side, cause I was on the end, the other side of the car wash were these greeters. And so a greeter is the sales guy, your car pulls up. How can I help you today? You know, your car needs this, this, and this, making recommendations, building rapport, building some relationships. And, uh, they were always in their like mid twenties, early thirties, the, the guys and girls who worked up there. Um, but I, I would hear them talk and I was like, I think I am capable of having chats with customers and being friendly and being nice to people. And, you know, making recommendations on what their car could use to leave the lot looking better than they came. So, uh, my manager gave me a shot at it. Just a 17 year old while everyone else is in their twenties and thirties. It's like their full-time job and I'm just working the summer and, uh, had a lot of success. Uh, was also learning a lot very quickly because I was able to talk to 200 different people every single day for an entire summer. Right. So you learn about how to interact with people how to make people smile, how to understand if someone's having a bad, bad day, how can you make them feel better? Um, it was more than just like a car wash. It was like really a, a cool two year job that I did just in the summers in between, you know, school to, uh, to be able to learn about what sales really is and that it's not being pushy. It's not your typical car salesman, the, the sleazy car salesman. It's actually like, how can you provide value to this person so that they leave happier than they showed up and they felt like their money was well spent, right? So the car wash was definitely like a, a defining moment for me. And then you get into like college. I, I, uh, I was pretty, pretty decent at math and science in high school and ended up uh, pursuing engineering just based on the fact that math and science came easy to me in high school, which in hindsight was like the worst decision ever because <laughs> engineering be was very difficult from, for me from the start. And I couldn't relate with anyone in my classes. I couldn't find that common ground that, uh, you know, I saw my business friends find with their classmates. So, but I always felt like if I started something, I want to try to see it through, at least push myself as far as I could. Well, I pushed myself to about junior year and, uh, hated it even more come junior year. And so I really wanted to, uh, to get out of it. And I go and sit with my counselor and, uh, my counselor's like, I mean, we can switch you to business right now if you want, but you're going to be here for like another five years. And so I'm like, all right, I'm just going to find a way to, to, to kind of buckle down and, and grind this out and the engineering side of it. Although I didn't get a lot from the classes itself. I learned a lot of problem solving from it. And like, this is hard shit that I don't know if I'm allowed to curse on this, but this is hard stuff that, uh, I wouldn't otherwise be able to, uh, to do, but how can I find the finish line? How can I like push through and, and get this done? And it was pretty rewarding, like graduating with an engineering degree today. I don't use a single lick of engineering. That's for sure. But the idea of like surviving 
that hard time. Um, joining the fraternity was, was a defining moment for me, for sure. I got involved on the executive level. I was social chair, bench chair, internal social chair, external social chair, always working with students in different organizations to try to come together and have a, a you know, a kick-ass event, have an awesome, awesome time. And that way it wasn't so secluded with my group is how can I, how can I build a reputation that we're approachable? Other people want to do stuff with us, throw parties, events with us. Um, I got to talk to so many different guys and girls in different organizations and felt that that really helped grow my network. Uh, got involved with some spring break planning, which, which was great. Uh, put 500 students on a cruise ship my, my junior year and learned that uh, I'm really passionate about the travel industry and maybe not the travel industry as much as just like the rewarding feeling of someone telling you that work that you did they had an amazing time on. And, and that's such a cool, like full circle thing. Cause there's a lot of work that goes into the logistics of putting on a trip of that size. But when someone at the end of the week's like, awesome, this was the coolest spring break I've ever had. That's like, okay, that's cool. Like I was able to do that. So spring break was defining, uh, the most significant from like, a occupation standpoint was probably working for beatbox beverages, uh, as another shark tank company. I saw them on TV. I'm, you know, a sophomore in my dorm room watching watching shark tank and thought it was the coolest thing ever and so i uh i started working for this company worked my way up from like a customer to an intern to a full-time employee after college after not pursuing engineering which was the right move i was jumping in and selling this this party punch wine which i'm sure we'll talk about a little bit more as this interview goes on and uh and, and then starting kanga which has been the most defining thing that I've ever done and been a part of uh, the team here is incredible. We have seen this go from like truly the bottom of the bottom, which is a class project, which means literally nothing to where we are today and not even where we are today, but where everyone here kind of knows we're going because everyone that's looking at us right now sees exactly where we are right now. But in our heads, we're already a year ahead because we're planning products and launches and events and stuff that's 12 plus months out. So everyone already kind of here has the energy and knows what's coming and seeing that from class project to what that's going to be is pretty insane. So if there's any specific points in any of that, but those are kind of like the defining moments of, of myself and, and the guys that I've surrounded myself with. Yeah, super cool. So a lot I want to touch on. You covered uh, <laughs> quite, quite a few things there. It sounds like yeah, it's all kind of been leading up to this. You've had a number of different entrepreneurial kind of journeys uh, as stepping stones that have shaped you. But I want to, uh, we'll get to a lot more about Kanga later. Um, but I want to go back to that crab business. Uh, were you guys able to successfully sell door to door? And and did you keep none of it? I feel like you guys should have at least gotten a, a commission. Like that's not, right. no money. I may have gotten $50 <laughs> off of off of each bushel or a little, a little candy money or something like that. I think, I think what was cool is is having parents who come from an entrepreneurship background know the importance of it at a young age. And I don't think that my generation, the twenty mid-20s, going through middle school and high school were ever taught about entrepreneurship as like part of a curriculum. Uh, although nowadays, which is very cool, is there are second graders and elementary school kids who are learning about entrepreneurship at a very young age, we were fortunate enough to go talk to a second grade class in Charlotte a couple months ago, who was literally learning entrepreneurship. And I'm like, I still don't know how to spell the word, 
and you guys are like six years old, eight years old, whatever second grade is like learning about this is pretty cool. But yeah, that, that, that was very, it was very impactful just to see something come from nothing. Like you, you know, this boat was purchased. We worked on the boat, kind of restored it, you know, restored the, the engine. Then you're in the garage tying twine to a raw chicken that so that it can sit in the water the next day for an hour with patience. Then you come through and you're like, wow, we just pulled in a bushel of crabs. That's over $400 that that's going to be generated from this and going door to door. I think that the youth in me helped with those sales. I don't know if I'd be as successful as a 26 year old selling door to door as bushels of crabs, but, uh, definitely, definitely was a cool learning experience and something that when I do have kids, I'll start them very early and the discipline, the the patience and the reward that you can see from starting something like that is, is pretty cool. I think, uh, you know, being able to go out there and, and make your own money, have your own hustle is super important uh, to start to learn at a young age. I want to get to uh, some of the companies that you worked with right before um, starting Kanga. So it looks like you worked at Barstool Sports and Beatbox Beverages, which are two really cool, innovative, young companies. Uh, what did you kind of take from that? Tell us about your experience there. And, and what did you kind of take from that that you, you now apply now that you have your own company? Yeah, sure thing. So, so the Barstool Sports, it was a, uh, a company that they purchased called Old Row. It's like a Southeastern lifestyle brand. But essentially, when I got into college, I always wanted to find crafty ways to save my own money, right? But I always wanted to like, be able to get out of that high school style of clothing that I was wearing in high school. And I wanted to get some, I, you know, I came from Maryland, moved to the South. I kind of wanted to get involved with more Southern lifestyle. And so I figured instead of paying full price for some of these polos, hats, shirts, bathing suits, pants, stuff like that, why don't I reach out to the company and see if there's any give and take that can happen, right? So what, what happened during like the you know early 2013 to 17 when I was in college, a lot of these companies are starting ambassador programs or hadn't even started them, but needed someone to kind of say, Hey, this, this be a great way to get kids in college, to get more exposure, to get more, uh, eyeballs on the brand. And so when I was a freshman, I think I repped like six or seven different companies in different generic type of, uh, categories. So I worked for like a hat company, a polo company, a t-shirt company, a bathing suit company as an ambassador. And, uh, I learned a lot just about what brand awareness meant to, to a company what they were willing to give you in exchange for you to post on social media or talk about it at your fraternity chapter meetings or talk about it in your club soccer group meet. And it was a lot of value. Like they would send hundreds of dollars worth of clothes for free in exchange for that. And it kind of like a little light bulb off in my head. Like, this is cool. Like these brands like rely a lot on ambassadors and I'll pronounce this wrong, but evangelists, I think is the word. It's people who are obsessed with your brand. And, and you want as many people who are in love with your brand uh, as possible. And if you have 10 people who are in love with your brand, it's worth way more than 100 people who are just kind of interested in it. Those 10 people are going to have a much bigger impact. So I was an ambassador for Old Row and I helped like kickstart their ambassador program. And just learned a lot. If anything, it was the network, right? Because there was someone from every school across the country that was in this Facebook group. So if I'm traveling for an away football game or just want to get out of Clemson for the weekend, 
I always knew that I would have a friend, a, a, a Facebook friend at that school that I could reach out to and collaborate with or, you know, swap networks, introduce my friends to their friends and felt like my network was scaling very quickly through, through ambassador programs. And if anyone is young, uh, late, late high school, early college, like I, there's millions of brands out there. The brands that you love the most more than likely have an ambassador or a rep program. I highly recommend that anyone get involved with that. And all you have to do is send an email or a message saying like how much you love the brand, what you're willing to do for them. And if they don't respond, actually go do those things and then send it to them. Hey, look what I did for you guys. You sure you don't, you sure you don't want to partner up? You sure you don't want to work with me? Uh, it can go, it can go a very long way. And then yeah, beatbox beverages was taking that a step forward. The ambassador stuff was great. Like getting, getting clothes for free is cool. Save, saving money by not having to pay for that. Building the network, learning all that stuff's great. But you know, beatbox was like the first real, like I hate engineering. I see a, a pretty insane solution to a problem with this product. And what I mean by that is at Clemson, they had a heart, uh, a ban on hard liquor at our parties, right? All you can have is beer and wine. So most fraternities are just buying bush light, very cheap $10 case of beer. And, uh, I, when I was social chair, I began bringing like box wine into the equation because there's people who didn't love cheap light beer and wanted an alternative, but the box wine I was buying was Franzi and it's like white Zinfandel and, and yeah, red blend. And it's like, who really wants to drink that at 10 and 10 PM at night at a party? So I saw B-Box and Shark Tank and it was like blue raspberry, lemon lime, grape, fruit punch, like these fun flavors. And it was wine. And so I was like, okay, this is a way that we can get this through the no hard liquor ban and kind of bypass that, that rule. So I reached out to B-Box. They had no distribution in South Carolina and was able to explain to them what money they were leaving on the table every single weekend, right? If my fraternity was spending... $1,500 a weekend on beer and $500 a weekend on wine. And we have 20 fraternities and it's 20 fraternities times $500 in wine every weekend for an entire semester. You guys are leaving tens of thousands of dollars on the table. When I wrote that equation out in the email, the, the founders were like, we need, we want to talk to this kid. So and I picked up the phone and I had a conversation with them and said, Hey, like, this is a great product here. Here's, here's a good niche market for you guys. And, um, it was pretty cool. I, I worked, as an intern for them after that conversation. And, uh, and then, and then did some full-time work for them during the summer. And, and then after I graduated college, I ended up going and working for them, uh, as a regional manager in the Southeast calling on hundreds of distributors. And again, being in a sales position where it's bringing value, growing your network and, uh, and just moving fast. Like I just always knew I needed to be in front of people. And, uh, so the beatbox thing, like I always look back on is like a, Thank you for kind of shaping where we are today and, and who I am today. And uh, it's been pretty cool to see, you know, we still have a good relationship with them. So it's all fun now. Yeah. Well, uh, congratulations. You actually uh, had an impact on me because my fraternity had the same issue uh, and we were huge beatbox fans at parties. So like the whole liquor ban, uh, that's how I know beatbox is <laughs> just basically from the fraternity party. So that was uh that was you, I guess. Congratulations. That was a great yeah. idea. I, I, what, what's, what school, Aaron? Where I was were you uh, down at USC, Southern California. Okay. Um, and yeah, beatbox is really common at parties there. And so I guess uh, you made a difference. Yeah, you made it That's all, awesome. Made, made it all the way down to the West Coast. But I, how did you actually get in contact with them? So you just saw them on Shark Tank. 
were like, oh my God, like we should use this. Um, did you first implement it into your fraternity and then tell them? Or did you just like look up the founder after going on Shark Tank, write him a message, and then he's like, that's a great idea. Let's hire this kid. Yeah, it was, it was, I wish I could have done the first. Had they had Beatbox available in the state of South Carolina at the time, I would have, I think it's always better to do and then ask. So do the task, bring value to the company, then say, hey, look what we did for you guys. Let's partner up. Here's my credibility, right? I didn't have that luxury because they didn't have distribution in South Carolina. So the email that I wrote was very intentional and very direct. And it it broke down those numbers. And so when the founder, uh, which I got his email through LinkedIn, saw that they were leaving $20,000 a weekend on the table from this one little school in South Carolina and how there's so many other schools in the Southeast, that got their attention. So my recommendation, the lesson from that is if you can't physically do the action, if you don't have that person's merchandise, if you don't have that person's product or, or familiar with their service, then you need to write a quantifiable email, an email that has numbers in it that can show true value. And it's very easy to understand. You don't want to lie. You don't want to say a number that's like, you know, we can do a million dollars a weekend from Clemson fraternities with beatbox. Like, no, <laughs> we're not spending a million dollars on booze every weekend. But if you can find something that is uh, realistic, that is still an intriguing number, put it in writing, put it in email, get their phone number, try that way. Um, but it's always better if on the front end, you can do the action, then back it up. Now you have credibility and, and, and further yourself that way. Yeah, I think it's super cool that you were able to do that. It's like a good lesson uh, for anyone out there um, who, you know, see something they're interested in, just go for it. Like you didn't know these guys personally beforehand. You didn't have experience that doing this, but you just found a problem, uh, and a solution to that problem and, and really solved it for them. So, uh, super interesting that you were able to do all that while in college. Uh, tell us about the origin story of Kanga coolers. How did you guys come up with it? Uh, what did that look like right at the start? Yeah, it was, uh, it was crazy. So there's a class project. Um, my partners, Logan and Ryan were part of this original class project of five kids. And I think they'll, they'll always say like one of their biggest pieces of advice is never start a real company with people you are forced into a group with because the three of the other original five team members are no longer with us for that very reason. Uh, but it started as a class project. It was an entrepreneurship class. Uh, they launched a like fake Kickstarter video as if they were going to go on Kickstarter, but never actually did. And, uh, you know, I'm driving to our fraternity formal and, uh, I saw it on Instagram. I saw it on Facebook. And I was like, wow, this, this product makes a lot of sense. It's just a sleeve that goes around a case of beer, but it keeps everything intact. It'll keep it cold for, you know, the couple hours that you're drinking that beer. And, uh, you don't have to lug around these like huge $400 coolers that we all bought, but none of us really use that much. Like there's only a couple scenarios where those big coolers make the most sense. And so I thought it was really cool. And I reached out to the guys and asked if there was an opportunity to just come meet with them and chat with them. And they were open to it. And, you know, obviously I had to leverage contacts that we had, you know, Hey, I'm, I'm close with the beatbox guys. I'm close with the old row guys. I know, uh, the local Miller Coors reps, the local Anheuser-Busch reps, like, let, let me see where I can be of assistance to you. And I didn't ask them for anything other than, other than their time. And so, uh, they were open to it. And, you know, once we got in there, there was, there was good energy between Logan, Ryan and I, and, uh, enough energy to where we we were able to, um, 
you know, move the other three guys in a different direction who, who didn't really have the motivation to be there. They really just wanted to get a, a passing grade on the class project. Um, the other, you know, Logan Ryan and myself saw it as a little bit more. And so, uh, we needed some content help. We brought on Teddy Giard, uh, who, who's running branding and media and doing a fantastic job of it. And so, uh, you know, we had four, four of us kind of start this thing and it was a lot of late nights, Friday nights where the rest of the boys are going out for a happy hour where, you know, renting a room in our Watt center or whatever the local library is and, uh, doing some, some long sessions of strategizing, figuring out how are we going to make this thing and where are we going to get finances? Cause we're all broke college kids. And, you know, a lot of the challenges in the beginning, is just like, just starting, but you had four highly motivated people who were like, let's just, just one day at a time. Let's see what, what we can do with this thing. You know, do, do a Kickstarter campaign, get some samples made, test the market. And, um, uh, once we got through Kickstarter and delivered our first order, we realized that the version of the product that we made is like, it's pretty shitty. Uh, we really wanted to upgrade it, but the concept was there. Like people bought into the idea. People bought into the brand and said, okay, this is cool. Like let's make it better. So after that, we got right into like product development and really, really significantly improved the quality of the product. When we got to that point, we felt ready-ish for Shark Tank to try out. So we drove down to Atlanta, did a live audition, uh, brought a lot of energy. I think that's what set us apart because at the time, the product still wasn't amazing. The sales weren't amazing. But like we had three people who were trying out with just like more energy than everyone else trying out combined. And so, you know, we were able to move through the ranks of the Shark Tank process very quickly, uh, was able to film, made a deal with Mark Cuban, aired in April of 2019. And that's when we kind of considered that was the moment when, okay, this is a class project too. It's a real company now. So so how how much were you guys actually doing while in class? So it sounds like you, you had to make the Kickstarter while in class. Mm-hmm. You had to make a pretend Kickstarter. You guys took it seriously. Tell me just... Uh, in terms of what was going on while in class, because I think it's really cool that it was a class project. That's pretty unique. No, I appreciate that. And and that's actually like, we credit a lot of the early success to the fact that we did it while we were in class, did it while we were in school, because a lot of these public and private universities have resources for entrepreneurship that no one knows about. They've got grants, they've got connections, they've got real estate that you can rent rooms out for. They've got... um different accelerator programs. And a lot of these kids who are starting companies don't really know. They think it's go to college, graduate college, start your business. Well, when you start your business after college, you've got student debt, you've got rent payments now, you've got car payments, you've got all these expenses. When you're in college, for a lot of people, they're still supported by their parents. We were fortunate enough that our parents were still supporting you know, our, our living expenses because we were not making any money. So there's no better time to start a company than when you have no expenses. So we probably worked 20 to 30 hours a week on Kanga in those early stages, some weeks longer than others. But for the most part, it was go to school, try to get a C on every single project. No one's going for an A. An A is useless because we're not going to use engineering degrees after whatever else it was. Go pass. Make sure you pass your, your classes. Make sure you still have a social life. But maybe it's just not a social life that's five days a week of drinking. Maybe it's two days a week of partying. Maybe you get to go out on a Tuesday night and a Saturday night, Friday and Sunday are meetings. Like our Sundays were like six hour meetings. I remember that was like the one day now that we're like out of college. It's like, we all need our Sundays to like, 
get our sanity back from the week. <laughs> so it's a completely different shift, but the dynamic was good. It was just, everyone was just like eager to learn. Like we're making all these mistakes. We have no idea what we're doing, but looking back on it, it's like, I'm glad we were making mistakes when we were being supported by parents while we were in college, while we were in a place that we had all these resources, like making a mistake when you have a professor, you can go ask questions for is a lot better than making a mistake when all your eggs are in this basket and you have no idea what direction it's going. Yeah, I totally agree with you. So I I started my company while I was in university too, and kind of actually figured it out while I didn't have uh, have to go make money. I I couldn't recommend it more to people. That's the time to do it. Because if you do it right after, you're going to give up the second it gets hard. You should go through the hardships, you know, really while you're in university and have that support. Um, So walk me through you graduate, you kind of have this Kickstarter, according to you, uh, not the best version of a product. What does that look like immediately after school? Mm -hmm. And when did you know that this was something you were going to stick with and not go and try and be like, you know, 99% of the population and get a quote unquote real job? Corporate real job. Yeah. Yeah, So Logan was actually the only one immediately after graduation to dive all in. He moved back into his parents' basement here in South Carolina and was grinding out the full 50, 60 hour week, Ryan and myself, Teddy was still in college. Ryan and myself went and did work other jobs. I took a job with beatbox. Ryan took a job with the real estate firm. We did, uh, night shifts. Essentially we would be working on Kanga from 5 PM to midnight, wake up in the morning, do our quote unquote normal jobs, which beatbox was still very entrepreneurial, but it was still a normal nine to five job in that sense. And so it was very interesting dynamic for that first like year while, you know, Logan was all in, we were half in. We just had to wait until Kang was going to generate enough revenue to be able to support living expenses. And that's all we paid ourselves then. And for most of us, it's all we still pay ourselves now is what does it cost for us to live? Cover that. Everything else goes back into the company. That's been a great mentality that everyone has here now. We've got you know eight, eight or nine guys full-time, uh, four or five interns, and, and a couple hundred ambassadors across the country. And so everyone saw that mentality of like everything that's upside it's not personal upside it's back into the company but uh the, the first the first year was crazy like the the product was growing in quality it still was never where we wanted to it probably wasn't exactly where we wanted it to be until the fall of 2019 so well after shark tank had already aired six months after shark tank had aired but sometimes you have to tell uh product development no and marketing go which is, well, we're, the point we got to is like, okay, the product is the minimum viable product. Like, let's put it into the market, see what we can do, see if it has legs, not spend too much time in it. Cause if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. Why are you going to spend all this time developing a product that's not going to work? You have to find the balance, right? We were fortunate to do that, get the minimal viable product out into the market, generate some revenue. And then once we made improvements on it, listening to the customer feedback is when we felt, okay, how do we scale this now? That's when we got on Shark Tank. That's when we started teaching ourselves, you know, Google ads, Facebook ads, um, SEO, e-commerce. That's when we started to put our sales hats on and engage Anheuser-Busch, breweries, corporations, Fortune 500 companies, golf tournaments, whatever it was, and just go out and hand sell uh, custom coolers to people, which which brought in a, a, a enough revenue to to bring the guys on full time and. Uh, and then from there, we, we should have a lot of distribution channels. It's a complicated business model, which is a downfall, but it's a complicated business model, which which is means there's a lot of upside to it. There's a lot of different ways 
to generate revenue through this company. There's a lot of different ways to increase brand awareness. And so just finding the, the balance between the four or five different channels and uh, growing responsibly is, is what we're trying to like hone in on right now. Cause we've gotten to a point where, where growth is good. It's steady. Sometimes it's exponential. Okay. How can we, how can we manage the exponential growth? How can it be responsible? So you don't make rash decisions. And uh, you know, that that's what we're starting to figure out now is, is some of those, those hardships of growth. So I want to get more into the marketing channels and growth a little later. I want to, I want to know, um, how long did it take you guys to reach that tipping point that you were able to pay yourself a living expenses that you were able, um, to quit your quote unquote real job? Cause beatbox, I know is very startup culture. Um, how long did that take for you guys? And then you said there's eight or nine people on board and they all are kind of aligned under the vision of, you know, pay their living expenses, but funnel that into growth. How did you get people to be so bought into that? Yeah, I mean, one is, is have a, a culture here that's very desirable to be in. So, I mean, we try to trademark the term breakfast beers, which uh, in reality, no one's waking up here, coming in at 9 a.m. and drinking beer. But it's an illusion that we we are able to, to, to portray in TikTok and in social. And yeah, of course, on a random Thursday, we're going to come in at noon and have a great time. And, and on Friday afternoons is dedicated to content. But it's building a culture that people want to be here for because they find value in seeing something small grow into something big. And, uh, we've been fortunate enough to bring in people who are highly motivated to do that, knowing that they can ride the wave with us. And as we grow, hard work never goes unnoticed and hard work is always rewarded. So there are people who have been here who are getting rewarded along every couple months along the, the different, um, you know, this, this journey. And, that's been that's been cool to be able to do is is to see growth reward growth reward the the hustlers who are are under this roof right now and uh, there isn't I wouldn't say there's like a a tipping point exactly I do love that book um, Malcolm Gladwell tipping point it's it's really good but I don't know if we all like just knew okay this is it like it was we we kind of all had to like still assume the risk of like leaving our other jobs coming here and. Once, once you have your like ass under the fire like that, there's only one direction and it's up and you find a way to get it done. And those early, those early stages of like us just coming on full time, it was not a healthy work environment. It was 60, 70, 80 hour weeks in a warehouse that we paid nothing for because we're trying to be as lean and as mean as possible. And so we just kind of had to like hunker down for that, that year or so from mid, mid, uh, summer of 2019, which is when Shark Tank had just just aired, which was a huge sales boost. But you got it. You got Shark Tank's great for that moment, but then it's what you do after that moment that really like defines the direction of the company. Are you going to ride this way forward? Or are you just going to have your boost in sales and then eh, we're not going to leverage it anymore? So that 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 next year was very important for people to come all in and, and come full time to to help continue to push it forward and not just let the Shark Tank buzz you know go away. And, and so yeah, yeah. So. How long was it before uh, you guys actually got on Shark Tank? So we, we auditioned in May of 2018, filmed in September of 2018, and aired in April of 2019. So it was 11 months from audition to live TV. And, and were you full-time by the time you'd auditioned, or was this when you were still 
still still students still beat still beatbox still real estate for ryan logan was graduating that basically at logan's one year younger enough so he uh was graduating just as the episode was airing and so um ryan and i both came on full-time in mid 2019 after the episode aired and i would say that the the boost in sales allowed us to do that but the boost in demand also required us to do that because had had we not had the demand Ryan and I wouldn't have been able to leave because there wasn't as much that needed to be done in that exact moment. So we had, we had to make that decision and we both did. And, and it was, it was great. And as soon as Teddy graduated, which was just this past year, he's like three or four years younger than us. Uh, he kind of knew that this was going to be home for him. So. Yeah. So I kind of legitimized you and you knew at that point that this was a real opportunity. So I want to get to the actual Shark Tank episode. I feel like uh, most entrepreneurs or any entrepreneurial kids, you know, dream of that moment growing up uh, where you're actually in there. Tell me, what's it actually like when you're in the tank? Yeah, it was definitely like a dream come true for me because I like grew up on the show. I, I like credit the show as the reason why uh, I hate engineering so much <laughs> is because everything that the, the Shark Tank entrepreneurs are doing just looked way more fun than what I was doing in class doing engineering. And so... Um, it was awesome. We were, we filmed for about 25 minutes. Uh, they chop it down to like six or seven minutes. So a lot of stuff that was said was cut out, which is good because the stuff that was cut out was probably stupid shit that we were saying. So we got lucky there. Um, being able to have a beer on stage was like very relaxing and it definitely calmed the nerves. Uh, the craziest thing is just like seeing these cameras like fly in front of your face so that they can get their like pan angles and whatnot. That, that part was wild. Other than that, it's like a real conversation. Like you can tell that the sharks are like interested in your business. They see potential for it. And the ones that really wanted to like will jump on it. And that's kind of what Mark did. And Mark was like, he knew that he wanted to get involved with Kanga. He didn't want the other sharks to even have an opportunity to talk. He offered us a non-negotiable offer and we took it. And that was kind of the, the process there. But where we see such value is these like the reruns of the show. So like the night the episode aired, like you said, credibility, immediate leverage, it opened up doors and conversations with people that it would have been much tougher to get. Right. So we're working with Ace Hardware now. They love Shark Tank. Like they, they know that they can move Shark Tank products. It, the bridge is a little bit easier to cross with that leverage, but the product still has to be good. The product still has to pull off the shelf. It still has to be a standalone item. This just kind of helps get the meeting. Right. And then the reruns are great because we'll get 10 to 12 a year and more, more people will come into our funnel. More people will, We'll learn about Kanga and learn about the brand and, and what we're trying to build here. So it is a great experience. The the goal long term is not to be Kanga coolers at Seen on Shark Tank. And we're trying to move as far away from that as possible. It's we want it to be Kanga Coolers, one of the coolest cooler companies in the world. And that's what we're trekking towards. But but when Shark Tank airs in an early infancy of the company company, you do have to leverage it. It, it does have yeah. to kind of help you get to that next point. But you don't want to ride it forever. You want to ride it to a certain point. That makes sense. And and talk to me about your guys' relationship with Mark Cuban. What does it actually look at? You know, in the show, they all talk about all, all they can do. I know it would be next to impossible for them to be super involved in everything because, you know, I can only imagine they probably have like a couple hundred companies each that they're, uh, that they're a part of. So what does that relationship actually look like with Mark Cuban? One, like immediately after... And two, now that it's been a couple of years, how, how has that kind of evolved? Uh, and- sure. 
Yeah, it, it's 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 pretty minimal, like you say. Like he's got over two hundred and fifty, I think, in his just Mark Cuban company's role. It's mostly with his uh, with his group. So um, it's connections, it's check ins. Like I said, the the real value from being on Shark Tank, from our experience, taking on a small investment is uh, is, is the show itself. Is ABC? Is the reruns? Is the exposure? is the leverage. So we've always felt that that's been the, the, the largest benefit from it. And, uh, you know, it, it's, it's a good partnership. All is good. It's just the the main core of it is like how great that show is and how something like that can put you in front of 10 million people in, in the snap of fingers. And, uh, you can't pay for that. Like you, you, you can't pay for that exposure. Um, unless you have millions of dollars as a marketing budget, which we certainly don't. So, you know, it, 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 it was, it was a great experience overall. I mean, and we're, we're super pleased with the partnership, but, but we love the, the fact that we were able to have that seven minutes of airtime and, uh, and inspire other people, which the coolest thing that came from it was other young kids saying, Hey, Austin, like, Hey, Logan, Ryan, Ted, that's so cool. Like I'm, I'm considering starting my own business, but I'm kind of scared like watching you guys like i'm gonna go for it now like come on dude you can't get a better like instagram dm than that you know so walk me through uh immediately after shark tank sounds like you know most shark tank companies have this huge spike uh but you guys were really young were you able to handle it and how what did the next year look like like leveraging that and trying to turn yourself into something sustainable that you guys could continue doing yeah, we couldn't handle it at all. That's for sure. Like they give you a two week warning and it's like, dude, our inventory takes way longer than two weeks to make it and get it here. So we, uh, we sold out very quickly. We went on a back order. We were late to delivering the back order. So there goes the customer service side of things. But you know, you have to, you have to show transparency, compassion and, and gen and just be genuine with, with your consumers and let them know, Hey, here's the reality of the situation, guys. Like that was a crazy night. It, it really brought in a lot of, of orders that we weren't quite ready for. Um, if you guys can trust us and ride, you know, ride this wave with us, uh, we can bring a lot of value to you guys over the next couple of years. And so the customers that were all about it stuck with us and, and our lifelong customers first now and, you know, order any new product that we will release. But th- that next year was, it was really about learning how to handle uh, adversity at that scale. And, and so what happens if, there's another Shark Tank like moment. What happens if there's another Ace Hardware or or a big big opportunity? Can we step up? Can we rise to the occasion, or are we going to crumble and not be able to fulfill on on what's expected of us? So everyone just kind of had a different perspective coming into work. It was like whatever it takes to get the job done, we're going to do it to get the job done. Whereas maybe previous to that, it was we'd be okay with dropping the ball on a couple of things, but then it's like this is our livelihood now, man. Like we have people who are relying on us in, in the thousands and the tens of thousands of customers. And it's like, you know, you gotta do, gotta do whatever it takes to, 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 to get it right. And so just, it was just a learning moment, bringing on interns, new warehouse, commuting, stuff like that. Um, was, was pretty cool. So how did you guys fix that? Talk to me about like supply chain and, and what you guys did and, uh, how much more, how much were you able to handle? in terms of orders at the time of Shark Tank versus, you know, a year after or where you guys are now? 
couple hundred to, you know, low thousands was probably like the, the constraint at, at the beginning. And, uh, what we were able to do, open up the supply chain, get multiple factories, get multiple freight carriers, engage as, in as many, with as many people as possible so that we could leverage, uh, the different relationships to help us grow and, uh, see competing prices and make educated decisions to now talk about margins. And now the volume can be in, in the hundreds of thousands of units. And so from a factory standpoint, uh, we've been able to grow and learn a lot. And, and the factories have more respect for us now. We feel like we're in a little bit more of a power spot than we were back then when we're sending very minimal orders to them. But now, just as them getting us coolers is our livelihood, us sending them orders could be a big chunk of their livelihood now. So that's what's pretty cool about uh, seeing the growth and, and seeing the volumes increase you know, over the last couple of years. But yeah, the, the supply chain's wild. COVID was wild. The freight market just took a, took a tank. Stuff that used to uh, get here in a couple of weeks is taking a couple of months now. And so you have to manage customer expectations. You have to make sure that they are the evangelists and, and love your brand enough to where they're willing to wait for stuff. And uh, how can we give them value if we don't have a product? Okay, well, maybe we do a YouTube series. Maybe we all go start doing more podcasts. Maybe we grow a TikTok account and do dumb shit and funny shit and try to give them something to that can make the weight not seem so bad. So take me through, I know you guys obviously repurposed all the Shark Tank stuff, really leveraged that for a little while. But once that kind of wore down, um, what were the marketing channels you really focused on? And, and how did that look like kind of trial and error, figuring out what works, figuring out what doesn't, um, you know, once, once that buzz died down a little bit. Yeah. So, so many. So we saw on our website, direct to consumer first and foremost, and it's making sure we have a high quality product that we can ship to people very quickly. We have inventory in stock if possible and building the brand social, uh, podcast, whatever, whatever it takes to give value on that channel. The next channel is the side of the business that, that I mostly manage, which is our B2B side, which is involved of wholesale, embroidery, and custom coolers. And so on the wholesale side, uh, it's being able to deliver 20 plus units at a time at Keystone price so that they have enough margin to be able to make money off of us. And uh, so wholesale has been a very interesting channel for us. How do you, how do you get wholesalers to know who you are? One is social. Two is like attending trade shows. So we started going to these trade shows with this like teeny little booth and trying to make some noise there. And although like we didn't have the $10,000 booth that some of these other people, some people spend $100,000 on a booth. We went in there with a tablecloth, a table, a fun product, but we had happy hour at 1 p.m. in the afternoon. And we found different creative ways to attract people to our booth. Give them a beer right after lunch. Who doesn't want a beer while they're walking around at trade shows, right? So we had, we had music, we had fun. And so we were able to open up a lot of accounts that way. The other uh, channels is the custom and embroidery. So if someone has a golf tournament, they can lean on us. We can put their logo on it. They can hand it out to their players. Uh, and, and what's been really good is the custom channels. Our product is able to be fully customized. So if someone wants to completely wrap it in rainbow or they want a solid black cooler with their logo on it, we can do either for the same price and, uh, and allow them to give it away, resell it, however. But just building relationships to where people want to work with us. And so I think when I think about sales and B2B side, it's like people want to do business with people that they like. And so if they like working with us, they're going to continue to do business with us and vice versa. And so that's been a, uh, 
something that we always to our core try to try to focus on. How, how can we be genuine people, genuine business people, and um, and just give value to the to the customer? Never sell them a, a bad product. Was there any one big account that's really helped you out throughout the years? Yeah, I mean, I would say like Anheuser Busch was kind of there from the beginning, which was crazy. Like Bud Light was was a PO that I got to kind of wave on Shark Tank and let people know, and that kind of the shark's jaws dropped. And ever since, they've been a a pretty consistent reorder for us. But there's been there's been hundreds of brands along the way, and that's what's so cool is it's every different. We've sold sold to law firms, we've sold to the largest brewery in the world, we've sold to the smallest brewery in the world, and and every different demographic of people. Um, bike shops and the the list goes on. I, it's sometimes like surreal to like go. We have a wall where it's like a bunch of different brands we work with, and just looking at it and being like, can't believe they like bought coolers from us. That's like that's so cool. They're, that's so random, you know. Um, but I mean, I could I could shout out a million of them. We, we'd be here all day. Yeah, no, that's awesome uh, that you were able to get that in Hazard Bush and really early on. Um, I want to get to i think we've talked a lot about some you know how you've grown the business what you did successfully uh obviously uh every entrepreneur goes through trials and tribulations uh i want to maybe hear about uh, a failure that you guys had and something you had to overcome and maybe something that if you could do over again you would do a little differently yeah no for sure i mean there's been a ton of of failure and i think i i hope that other people can learn from it uh so that they don't make the same mistake like i know we've avoided a lot of mistakes by learning from other entrepreneurs that we all like to follow. But I'd say one that comes first to mind is just like transparency with your customers. So whenever we do have delays, whether it's in our control or not, and most of the time it's not in our control, but it's still on us to manage the customer's expectations. So if we have a back order on our website and it says that it's going to deliver next week, mid-May, right? But we're not going to get the product until June 1st. And we know that because of a shipping delay. It's really important to get ahead of that, right? Like if your customer is waiting for May 16th so that they get it and they can take it to a wedding and give it as a gift to their best friend and you don't give them that heads up, that is going to make them polarizingly hate the brand as opposed to, hey guys, it's late, it's late April. This is the information we got. We're really sorry. We're going to throw two koozies in your order because this is going to be two weeks late. You know, we hope you guys will ride with us on this. If you need a refund, no worries. Like we can get you a refund and just kind of like tackle that on the front end so that it doesn't like stir up and, and minimize the frustration. Cause listen, like shit happens. Like there was a, there was a freight carrier stuck in the Panama canal a couple weeks ago, like sideways. And that backed everything up. You just never know what's going to happen. Right. So a lot of times people are understanding, especially now post COVID people kind of understand that like, shit hits you in the smack in the face and you have no idea what's going to go on. And so you just, how do you roll with that? How do you, how do you deal with the, the, you know, the repercussions of it? And, uh, but man, there's been, there's been dozens, if not hundreds of mistakes that we've made. I will say one like general thing that we've learned the first, and, and my buddy sent me this a couple weeks ago in like a quote, but when you start, when you start a company in the beginning, the main challenge is it, it for most, is, is sales, selling, and, and marketing. How do you market the product effectively? And how do you sell it? How do you market it so people want to buy it, right? Those are like the two main things. Once you get to a certain point, that's still always going to be a challenge and always very important to do. But other things become bigger challenges. So right now, sell, selling and marketing was very hard for us two years ago. 
right now there's a lot of demand for the product that we can't fulfill. So, so selling is, is doing okay and marketing is doing okay. The challenges now come in operations, logistics. How can we get the stuff here? How could, how, when we have dozens of containers on the water, how can we get it here effectively? It's financials, making sure cash flow is strong. Uh, it's real estate. Can we make sure that we're moving into a warehouse that can hold what we just ordered? Or did we not move into a place big enough? Uh, and it's HR. It's now, like I said, there's 11 or 12 of us here now. It's, are your, are your employees happy? Are your brand ambassadors happy? Are they not? If they're not, what can you do to, to fix that? It's, is there any conflict in between members now? Because when it's just four people, it's like you just hash it out right then and there. When there's 12 people, you never know. Like stuff can build up. And so, you know, HR operations, finance, and uh, real estate become a larger challenge when in the beginning that didn't mean anything. It was all sales and marketing. So just something that I thought was very interesting. My buddy sent me the other day. It's all the stuff you never think about when you're just starting. You got to sell, yeah. sell to survive. You don't even think about what will happen if you actually uh, do so. Spot on. Um, so we're we're coming. Uh, you know, you started this, and unfortunately, you got hit wow, COVID right. You know, probably in the start of when you guys were starting to really gain some traction. How did that impact your business, and what were you able to do to mitigate that effect? Yeah, so I, it it rocked a lot of different parts of, of the business for sure, especially in the beginning. Um, I think what I'm most proud about is how the team approached it mentally, right? It was one of those things, this is out of our control. What are we going to do about it? We can either mope about it and, and fold the business, or we can find a solution to continue pushing forward, generate revenue, and actually have a, have a growth year. Uh, and, and that's what we did. The, the Q3 and Q4 were monsters for us. Um, we were able to shift our messaging from, hey, this is a cooler that you take out with your friends and do all this to hey, this is a 12-pack cooler. Like You should be able to drink 12 beers by yourself in a day. This is now a personal cooler, right? Shift messaging to where it's not, here's your socially distant cooler. You know, stuff that, that you have to do on the fly that can make it more in the moment with whatever the situational and having situational awareness of what's going on. And we, we use resources like there's, you know, loans that we were able to, to help and lean on with, with the government and stuff. But um, it was really just like the the persistency that everyone had and that like that drive to, okay, this sucks. Like this freaking sucks for everyone probably sucks worse for others than it does for us. So how can we use the current situation we do have and get through it? And, uh, that's something like you can't teach. Like that's just surrounding yourself with a good group of, of guys and girls that want to help you get to that goal and, and not give up on you. And so just, there were long hours for sure during COVID, but for the most part, sitting down, meeting, strategizing, and executing. Like we can talk all day long in the conference room about this great plan to help us get from point A to point B, but then everyone goes home and does their own thing. No, like let's go execute it right now. It's kind of stuff like that. Yeah, it's good that you guys were able to kind of transition because a lot of companies just got killed uh, not yep. being able to do that. Um, but you know, you know that once you weather that storm, you can pretty much get through anything. Um, so my last question specifically about Kanga, uh, where do you envision the future of this company going? Maybe give me a one year, five year and 10 year, uh, timeline, obviously so much unknown, like who could have predicted what just happened, but, uh, ideally, what does this look like for you? Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, one year from now, I just hope we can all like catch our breath. That would be goal number one. We're all like three, four days behind on emails and 
product development. And it's just like, we're moving so fast and it's really fun and it, it is growing pains, but man, to just be able to like open my email and see a number zero would be really, really cool if I can get there in a year. Um, five years from now, I, I, I think we all want Kanga to be a household brand. I want, I would love if, if I could just be going on the boat in the summer and I look around and I see like half the boats have, have a Kanga cooler on board or a Kanga koozie or a Kanga product. Cause we're expanding into new products over the next six to 18 months. Um, yeah, I'd like to have a lot of different offerings. Uh, I want people to think of us and think like, wow, that's like a fun, approachable group of, of guys and girls in a fun, approachable brand. Uh, that'd be the five-year goal, 10, 15 years. Like, man, like, let's go after Yeti. Let's go after Brewmate. Let's, uh, let, let's go after the, the big, the big fish in the sea. And, uh, you know, they, they've been like, roommates been around 10 years. Yeti's been around 20 years, 20 plus years. Um, we've been here for a little over really selling for a little over two years. Like there's a lot on the horizon there in the next 10 to 15. And, uh, I just want, I just want people who work here to like love it. And I want to, inspire other kids who are thinking about starting businesses, like go start your own business, like go do it. Now's the time to do it. Do it in college. If you can't do it in college. Do it right after college. You have to do it before you have responsibility, like real responsibility, like dogs and kids and mortgages and stuff like that. And people don't think about that. And, and I really want people to get out of that idea that, Oh, my parents told me I need to be a lawyer. So I'm going to go do that. We need lawyers. So I hope that there are people who still pursue that, but people don't want to do that. What do you want to do? Go do it. Why? What's really holding you back? Is it yourself or is it what society is telling you to do? That's something I think we're all pretty passionate about here. Yeah, I love that. And I think it's, it's a great message for people everywhere because uh, I think too many people are, are scared of taking that risk and, and, and don't know that it's really achievable that entrepreneurs are just pretty normal people who just kind of Super normal. If not, we might even be dumber than the people who are who are doing big things. You know? Yeah, I totally totally agree. Um, all right. Well, I want to get to uh, the last section of uh, the podcast interview, which we call the quick fire round. So these are going to be questions uh, not related to Kanga, um, and ideally, if you can answer in thirty seconds or less, uh, that would be great. All right, let's do it. I like this. So do you have any morning rituals that you do to kickstart your day? Yes. I like to get up six, six thirty. I go to yoga. I freaking love it because when I was in college, I couldn't touch my toes because I had a beer belly. Now I can touch the ground. Uh, it, it refreshes me. Try to eat healthy, get a breakfast, uh, come to work on time. Nine o'clock is late. Eight fifty nine is on time. And, uh, yeah, try to keep consistent with that. Good night's sleep seven, eight hours. I don't do the five hour sleep. I, I need my sleep. Whose content do you listen to, watch, or read the most? Oh, a ton of people. But uh, I like Gary V from the side of positivity. I think that there's not enough people who are like preaching like positivity and, uh, and, and compassion and being genuine. So I really like what he's doing. Um, I actually like listening to the founder of Groomate, Dylan. He's very interesting entrepreneurship journey because they're a multi hundred million dollar company. And so, uh, 
And I like consuming it with podcasts. Mostly I haven't picked up and read a book for a very long time. So it's mostly podcasts, YouTube and, and TikTok. Is there a favorite book or article uh, that's impacted you the most in your life? Yeah, I, this would be probably the last book I read, but it's called The Little Red Book of Selling. And it's like a seven or eight step book about how to effectively influence people, bring value, build rapport, build relationships. And it's had a tremendous impact on, on my sales career. I got to check that out. Uh, what is your favorite alcoholic beverage? Oh, so many, but for beer, Miller Lite. For liquor, it is gin, uh, probably Tanqueray or Hendrix. If I can afford it, I normally can't. Do you have a favorite mixed drink? Uh, probably gin and soda, gin and tonic, so- somewhere in there. But I don't discriminate on, on my mixed drinks as long as it's like not loaded with sugar. What is your favorite purchase of $100 or less? Uh, and oh. it, it can maybe be a little more, but I don't want it to be something like like a big thing that you purchased. Gotcha. That's a that's a good question. Um, trying to look around here. All right. Well, I got my. Uh, no, I don't like that. I was gonna say I got my Apple Watch for hundred bucks on Black Friday, but that's not a hundred dollar a uh, hundred dollar item. Let me think on this one and see if I can come up with it after the end. All right. Sounds good. Uh, what is the, your favorite place you've ever been to? Probably Dubai. Uh, my aunt works for an airline and for my 16th birthday, she said I could go anywhere in the world with her because she has like companion passes. And so I just like randomly picked the Middle East thing to go to Dubai. And they're light years ahead of where we are from technology and, and everything, basically. So definitely the coolest place I've ever been on, ever been to. What is your favorite brand that isn't your own brand? Mm. So Chubby Shorts was like the first company that I did my ambassadorship for and still love what they do. They're American made, which I respect the hell out of quality products and they're fun and funny and approachable. So right now off the top of my head, I think I would say Chubby Shorts is like my favorite brand to follow. My last question here is what advice would you give to someone looking to build their own influence? whether that is in the business or influencer world. Good. Yeah, I I was waiting for one of the influence questions to come up. I had a feeling that they they would be on there. But yeah, so I'm going to start it off answering this question real quick with with a quote. And someone told me this quote like years ago, and I never really understood what it meant. But over the last couple of years, I have. So the, the quote is, it's not about who you know. It's about who knows you. Because you grow up and it's always like, hey, you know, shake hands. It's about who you know. Like, that's how you get further in life. But it's actually about who knows you is, is what one of my mentors told me. And I didn't really understand what that meant because I felt like that was a very, like, cocky, conceited way of thinking about it. But they, now over the years, I've understood that it doesn't mean who knows you from, like, Instagram following amount or the quantity of people that know you. It's it's the quality of someone knowing you. And it's why do they know you? Why, how can I position myself and my influence in a way that when someone needs something, they feel confident that I'd be the first person that they would go to. Or when someone wants to purchase a Kanga cooler or a cooler, are they thinking about Austin and Kanga first? Or are they thinking about going to a competitor? It's who knows what you're building and what you're doing. For example, my, my, I was a officiant this weekend in a wedding. My friend asked me to marry him. Like he thought that I'd be the best fit out of all of our friends to go get ordained 
and marry him and his, his fiance. So like, how can you position yourself that way? I get tagged a lot in those Instagram posts. That's like, you know, if someone's about to give you a million dollars, you have to pick up the phone and call someone. If they answer, you get a million dollars. If you don't, you get nothing. Everyone tags me because they know I'll be the first person to answer their phone call and be reliable. And so it's not about who you know, it's about who knows you in a non-cocky sense, in a non-conceited sense, in that if you are reliable, trustworthy, the right person for the task or the need that they have, it's how they know you. And so I thought that was pretty cool. Um, that would be that would be my advice is to, to just build a good reputation in the niche that you want to. Um, and my niche right now is, is in coolers, beverages, drinks, travel, and um, just being a reliable person. Like people can count on me and, and I really like that about myself. I think that's uh, great advice. Well, uh, I really appreciate you coming on, you know, from starting the crab business, going through to the car wash to uh, revolutionizing the cooler industry. I think it's a, uh, you have a really great story. And I think uh, my listeners uh, will be able to take a lot from, from what you've done. So I appreciate you coming on today. That'd be awesome. Yeah. I hope everyone uh, checks us out on, on social media. And if you want to connect with me personally on LinkedIn, by all means, always love uh, sharing stuff there. And, you know, thanks so much for having me. This is a great podcast. We've got a great, a great team here. And I think, uh, you know, everyone should try to surround themselves with, with really good people because that, that's, that's what can make you uh, who you are. So, Awesome. And that was Hunting Influence. To find out more about Influence Hunter and how we source micro and nano influencers to exponentially grow the reach of your brand, visit influencehunter.com. And then make sure to search for Hunting Influence in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else podcasts are found and click subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at Influence Hunter, thanks for listening.